All right, it is podcast, another fishing podcast, episode 18, and I'm super, super excited. I am with world-renowned muskie expert, Pete Mayna. We're talking about all things muskies and whatever else we want to talk about. Pete, you ready to do this podcast? Absolutely. So excited. So excited, Greg. All right, me too. Let's go. This isn't another fishing podcast. This is another fishing podcast. My man, Pete, dude, how you been, dude? Good to good to see you. Good to talk with you. It's been a while. Likewise, is that a muskie up behind you on the wall there? Yeah, it's um, you know, it could be all kinds of things, I think. That's kind of the fun of it. It's uh I don't know what the technical term is. Uh Amber, ambies, well, let's not get into it. It can be any species you want. I see fins, and and I was kind of glad that you turned around to look at the fish because then I saw the ham sign. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Um, the ham sign is is there to kind of uh, hide an outlet, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, the outlet for this for this light right here. Um, okay, but that's just for us, right? You don't tell anybody. No, no. So what, what have you been up to, dude? I, I know that you were on a shoot recently with Gillespie. And, uh, actually leaving to go on a shoot with Gillespie. Oh, okay. Flowers. Yep. Okay. So you're leaving to go. Okay. So where yep. are you guys heading? Uh, Leech area. Over okay. There. I'm not really sure. Based on the wind forecast that I've heard, we may or may not be fishing Leech. So we'll just kind of see. Okay. A lot of other water around there. So, so how's right. your, uh, how's your, your summer been going? I, I obviously you're in full shoot mode and, and busy, busy, busy. What's it like being Pete Maine in the summertime? Well, summertime is a little, you know, it, actual summer, July and the first part of August. I fish a lot of bass, believe it or not. That's great to hear. I, People I need to like know that Pete Maine is a multi-species guy. You know, he can yeah. do a lot of, lot of things. I have a friend that calls them lily pad carp. <laughs> but I generally, uh, I generally wait till about mid-August till I get really after the muskies again. And But this is my favorite month right now, September. September. So, it is. I was yeah. talking uh, to my wife about this. We were on the pontoon last night. And how nice in the north, like, September is, you know? Oh, that's awesome. I mean, people don't really like when I lived down in, you know, I lived in Missouri for six years and I lived in Oklahoma for four years. And in the summertime, it's like, you know, it's really pretty miserable. And that even goes through <laughs> September, you know, like, I mean, it's like 90 plus, you know, degrees. And um, I mean, once you get to June, it's 90 and it stays 90, you know, it doesn't stop being 90. And so, but up here, 70, I mean, it's like mid seventies. It's so nice. I mean, we had a, we had a nice campfire last night. Uh, it's just a perfect summer's up in the North or I, I, you know, in through September, you know, all the way through September, really, really hard to beat. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just time should stop in September. <laughs> yeah, I agree. September should be at least half the year. Yeah, no doubt. So how's your uh, musky season been? Uh, so, so, so far, I am just off a streak of losing a lot of them. So I figured that's going to end. <laughs> nice. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. what's been, what's, what's happened? What do you think the reasoning for that is? Are you a little off your game or, or is it the muskies are, are sucking harder than normal? I think it's a combination of a lot of things, Greg. And I've experienced this over the decades, actually, where you get these little weird, unexplainable things to a certain extent. Part of it's screwing up. Part of it's luck. Part of it's the way the fish are hitting the baits. Uh, but very seriously, the, the neat thing about it is it turns around as well. You literally hit periods where you can do no wrong, it seems like where you actually screw up, but the fish still gets the hook. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all of that. So it, it really has always interested me how that can go. But we had, uh, I, was, uh, I was over in Minnesota fishing for the first time uh, Thursday, Friday this year. And we, my partner too, he was jinxed. Uh, you know, they just, you see the rods load up. And you go, ooh, that looks like a nice one. And then next thing you know, you get a shredded bait back and just the way it goes. But I'm ready. You're ready now. Yeah. So, so you're going up. The, uh, we, we've talked about this in the past. And I, I think it's really interesting how, uh, you know, we've done a, a ton of shoots together. Like Pete, Pete and I go way back uh, in case if you're just listening and you haven't heard our story. We... I, I met uh, Pete when uh, I was working for Bass Pro Shops Video Productions, and and then we did uh, shoots for the next bite, um, and I got to really know know Pete then. But we've had so many conversations, just in general about life, but also about just you know muskies sucking, and and I mean, uh, I don't know, like the thing that really. I've always, um, I mean, we've had long discussions about is that like people don't realize how important like peak times are, you know, this is something I wanted to get, uh, into you about like, in I've seen it filming major league fishing events where all of a sudden, uh, you know, like lake wide, you can just have the fish turn on. And you never, in, in bass fishing, you never saw that happen until you had this, these score trackers. You had a, a score tracker in each of these boats that when a fish was caught, every, all the competitors, uh, you know, on the whole entire lake would know how everybody else was doing. So while I'm fi filming these major league fishing events, I'm hearing like these flurries, bop, 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 you know, happen when there's been no change in the environment at all, like seemingly. I mean, it's like you don't like there hasn't been a weather change. All of a sudden, the fish just start triggering, you know, and I've thought about that recently. It's it, like, you know, most like uh, muskies guys know about this. Like you just know that you got to be if, if, if it's the peak time, you got to be on your spot and you got to be ready and you just reminded me of that. Like it, it, it doesn't really matter. You can have, you know um, you can, you can mess up. And when they're, when they're active, you can still get them, you know, but you better be, I mean, you better be on your spot, you know, when that's, when you're in that peak feeding time, I just think it's interesting. I, I hope like more anglers just, you know, outside of the musky world realize that, and I've seen it in bass fishing that it's such a, it's such a huge deal. Like I, you know, that, that 
we try to explain, oh, it's because, um, you know, this or that. But when you have like no change in conditions and the fish just all start, you know, start biting, you know, I mean, that's that's a really interesting thing that muskie guys have figured out. But I don't think the rest of, you know, uh, other anglers, other speed, you know, hitting other species really understand that well. No, I, you know, you and I have talked about this for years and, and, uh, you know, the, with the musky thing, I think it's a little more profound actually, cause they're the, you know, they're, they're the top line predator in the system. So they rule roost when they really want to feed everything else should hide. But yeah, you see it with all the species. I've seen it with walleye, panfish, uh, lake trout. Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed by that because, you know, on average, we're fishing them 60 to 100 feet down. And I've literally had pods of fish that I've seen before that we go through at lures. We cannot get them. And then literally all of a sudden something happens where you finally get a bite nearby and i've been you know i i know i've got this really good pot of fish and all of a sudden i get a bite and run back over to the spot where i've got the most fish marked don't even change lures these are fish that ignored those lures an hour ago and you come back in and you pop three or four and that's nothing other than the window you wouldn't think it would make any difference 100 feet down but it's just that's the way it is with muskies, I would say five to 10% of your day is literally your, your whole day. That's when you can expect to do the most amount of catching. Generally, it's weather-related, but in a lot of cases, when it's steady weather, it's moon-related, and it's somewhat predictable. Uh, the other weird thing that gets thrown in is, you know, the certain lure types may be working, usually with muskies, when there's a a wide open window, a little bit of everything can work, but sometimes it's also very specific in the lure type as well. And that's really tough to deal with when you're on the wrong side of that equation. Cause if you're fishing an area, say a big weed bed, big rock area or whatever, where you can see other anglers and you can literally see a window open up and somebody's getting them and you aren't or vice versa it's always a lot more fun when you're the one getting them and they aren't no doubt but, you know you'll see that and and it's that can be pretty amazing too or just a specific lure type or even a specific sound or vibration within a lure type is being effective while other things aren't yeah no kidding the other thing too I want to bring up is, you know, what, what, in your opinion, and this might be kind of a controversial question here, but in oh, your opinion, <laughs> I hate controversy, Greg. No, no, I, I, I know. That's why I love you. I love you for a lot of reasons. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you're naming books, muskies suck. I mean, immediately, I mean, you know, that's why I'm, you know, I'm a, one of the many reasons why I'm a big fan, but the, the, uh, you know, when we, when we'd go out on all these shoots, you know, I noticed, um, there's awesome musky fisheries, Lake St. Clair, you know, in, in Michigan, I would say that that's, that's, you know, at least, you know, doing the shoots with you through the years that had to be up there with one of the, the great fisheries, you know, musky fisheries. There's no doubt. No yeah. Doubt. yeah. And, and then, um, but we would also come to Minnesota quite often. And, and, you know, we did some shoot, 
a few shoots on on Leech Lake. What is it about that strain that like what is about Minnesota? What is it about that strain of muskies that just like every it seems like uh, a lot of the the uh, natural resource departments, whatever they want that strain. If they, if they have a muskie program, they want that strain of muskies. Well, uh, I think the spotted strain, which includes the Great Lakes strain, which is in, in Lake St. Clair, obviously, and uh, also the, uh, the Bay of Green Bay, which is a tremendous trophy fishery. That's, you know, by far and away our, our best trophy fishery here in Wisconsin. I do think they get a little bigger. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a lot, but they grow faster and get a little bit bigger. Uh, they're actually quite different than our Wisconsin strain and where they like to stage up, especially at certain times of the year. But in general, I also believe that they will sit shallower in a lot of cases on structure. And I also believe they group up much more so than Wisconsin strain in a lot of cases. So that's part of the challenge too, is, uh, you know, finding the fish, but obviously if you, even if you only raise one of the spotted strains, there's more than likely several around. And that makes huh. it a big deal and an interesting patterning deal. And in a lot of cases where, uh, fishing Wisconsin only it, at first in my early years, I was somewhat disadvantaged because the, I would concentrate more on edges and effectively, but at certain times of year, especially, but the spotted strains will sit shallower overall. They'll actually seek out in a lot of cases, like on rock structure, the shallowest rock on a piece of structure and sit right next to it. So that's where, you know, I, I really had a learning curve at first in, you know, starting my career with the Wisconsin string. And as far as where they try and stock these strains, that's a huge argument that may be the controversy you're somewhat speaking about. In, in Wisconsin, there's really a lot of pushback to not have spotted strains in some areas, but where they've been tried uh, down around Madison and some different areas mid-state, uh, it's been pretty effective there as well. There's a lot of fisheries. Uh, let's say Malax in Minnesota would be one that sticks out. Uh, the St. Louis River is another one where stocking-wise they put both in. Uh, and there's been a lot of concern that, you know, maybe, maybe we're diluting strains and this, that, and the other. But the reality on the ground is, is that they seem to do pretty well. Uh, in, in all cases. So that's something that could be argued about for ages, I guess, that no one technically in my mind could really prove one way or the other. I don't, I don't know. You would assume they might crossbreed, but my understanding is, is that the Leech Lake strain spawns quite a bit deeper than the, uh, our Wisconsin strain. So maybe they aren't crossing in a lot of cases and they're just doing their own thing where both strains exist and they're not crossing over from one to other. But, but that's where I hear negativity on the spotted strain is that's the concern that they're worried about diluting 
uh, you know, the original strain, Wisconsin strain. No kidding. And, and so it's, it's interesting because it's almost like it's, um, it's a new species, like trying to like, in I mean, who knows in a thousand years or whatnot, it, it, it could be an entirely new species. It's like, it's, it's diverting, you know, potentially. So it's basically, so it's, it's the, the leech lake strain is a spotted strain. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely a different strain, you know, with, without a doubt. And, uh, but can they cross? I don't know. I mean, we've had natural hybrids for years, obviously, regular muskies. And, and, and this occurs both with the spotted strains and the Wisconsin strains where we get natural hybrids. They aren't stocked, but yet they're there. So, you know, it's muskies crossing with northerns and northerns spawn first. They spawn in colder water, but they spawn in the exact same areas the muskies generally do. So what happens, you get more of it in a spring where the water warms up real quickly. So you got, you know, pike are ready to spawn right away. But if the water warms up very quickly, then you get, you know, muskies will start to spawn around 55 degrees surface temps and you just get you get eggs mixed up, right? Because they're, you know, they're, they're spawner. They just drop and swim, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. eggs and sperm obviously get mixed up and, uh, and we, get, we get hybrids. So technically the same thing could occur. I would think it does, you know, I don't totally discount the concern that possibly introducing a spotted strain could mix with an existing strain. It's certainly possible. It makes sense to me. It's possible. Yeah. But I don't know if it's a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big question. Right? You know, one of my favorite things, dude, is like, it seems like every summer or, or around like when musky season starting, there's, there's stories of a young, uh, young child frolicking in the water and attacked by a ferocious musky. Um, you know, and then, and then all the, I don't know, it, I, it happens up here on uh, North of me where, you know, there's, there's a, you know, anglers want muskies stocked. And then, uh, then the whole, the, the Lake Association, no, no stocking those, those freshwater well, barracuda that are oh. going to be ta- attacking our children, you know, yeah. and it's just yeah. like the most fear mongering nonsense. Yeah, no, that, well, if you stock those nasty muskies, you got to put masks on them. They're dangerous. Oh, my, I knew, I knew. So I wanted to, I, I, so we're not afraid, we're, you know, to shy away from a bit of controversy here. But yeah, I am a bit curious, like, what are your thoughts during this whole, and, and listen, I understand, you know, go as far as you're comfortable as going here, of course. Okay, that's, <laughs> but I got to tell you, um, Personally, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm blown away by the world that we're living in right now, Pete. I cannot get over the insanity of everything right now. What are your just general thoughts? And again, you know, this, this is a podcast where I want I, I, it's, to, it's like, you know, when you get, you see the gas station, you see all the, the, the old fishermen hanging out at the gas station. And that happens a lot around the places where I'm at here where you get the old fisherman hanging out in the morning at the, the local gas station, hanging out, you know, with a, a coffee or whatever, and they're just BSing about everything. And that's kind of like, like I, that's why I love podcasting just in general is like, you can go on any direction, but to me, I mean, 
what just what are you, what are your thoughts as I ramble here? Just backing up real quickly to the muskies eating the kids. <laughs> right. That does actually occur. Yeah. Quite yeah. rarely. And it's generally jewelry. I got to tell I, I have an old client of mine that had a uh, last summer, I believe she was 11 with a ankle bracelet of some kind swimming in the Chippewa flowage. I know he's not a liar. I saw pictures and a muskie grabbed this little girl's ankle. Oh, goodness. But it's normally sitting on a dock type stuff in these rare cases, but this girl was actually fully in the water. And believe it or not, I'm sure you're not surprised, but guess which ankle they went for with that nice flash. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. a dingleberry like on the, on the back of her ankle. Exactly. And a dingleberry, well, sort of. Like there's, I guess there's different kinds of dingleberry. What's a dingleberry? Like no, there's a traditional definition of dingleberry to a musky fisherman, Pete. What's a dingleberry? A dingleberry is any kind of uh, soft plastic or flashy apparatus you add to a lure. Uh, so it might be a little twister tail. It could be a little blade spinner, you know, that kind of stuff. That's what I call a dingleberry. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, these things, it, they, they do happen. Not very yeah. frequent. But yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a muskie. I remember I was, uh, I was fishing on a lake not, not too far from me. And like, I just had their muskies are very curious and they're not, you know, the top of the food chain, you know, they're not afraid of, of anything or much of anything. So, you know, they're in there. I, I had this, this muskie just like looking at my trolling motor one time, you know, like the, the prop. And as I was, I looked down and I'm like, there's a muskie looking right at the prop of my trolling motor. And then I'd move the trolling motor a little bit and move the boat. And he'd just kind of move with the, with the trolling motor, with the prop, oh, you know, like just super curious. Two times I've had him actually hit the trolling motor prop moving. So, yeah. So, and it's, and it reminds me of like when we've done those, um, uh, with Mark Thorpe on the, in, in Montreal on the, on the St. Lawrence river, like we would be, and this is something really interesting. I, I tell people this, um, you know, when I'm out fishing, sometimes like you can troll in the prop wash for muskies, like you can troll six feet away from the prop wash of a big outboard, yep. you know, for muskies, like, and we've, you know, and they're, they're just a very, very curious animal. You know? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. They get stirred up by it in a lot of cases. No, uh, on to the mass. I, <laughs> I, I knew it. I knew it because yeah. Pete, it, it, I don't stop issues. So don't, no. but I, but I had to get on that ankle bracelet. No, no, no. It's a, that's a, that's a super interesting story. So was she okay? Obviously that's probably going to be a little, you know, a little, uh, little blood involved when, when someone gets their ankle bit by a muskie, but I guess it's the, the, was the person okay after such a, yes. okay. Yes. Uh, I, I, I do think they are aware that they can't kill and swallow something, which yeah. is their whole purpose. And uh, I think it was a couple of seconds basically from what I heard, but she, she definitely got scarred up good. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure she was scared. <laughs> no, no, I, that would be a scary, uh, scary deal, but you know, you're in uh, you're in a environment where such beasts, wonderful beasts, live, and we, you know, it's but that doesn't happen. It's almost like I don't know, maybe like a shark attack. 
they don't, you know, they're not very common. They do happen. <laughs> right. I don't know. Right. But yeah, so I am curious of, uh, you know, what, what your feelings are on this, you know, because you do main events, which is a great name, Lord, that's a great name, main events, uh, which, you know, on your social media, um, which you just kind of, you just kind of rant and I love rant and, you know, what's your, what's your rant about our current situation? Well, I think it's nuts and stupid and, and uh, crazy, frankly. But with regard to mass, I, the science, I want to see the peer-reviewed science that says masks actually work. Uh, six feet, I think that's baloney. And I think we could figure that out right away when there was, uh, oh, probably about 10 or 12 officials in a big ball the first time they told us about six feet, standing there telling us with this arbitrary number, six feet, and they're all about a foot apart. So I think that told me something right away about all of that. But yeah, that's it. I, I'm not going to go too much farther because I could rant. I would have to put my pink hat on. No, I understand. Let let me rant a little bit and you don't have to, you don't have to nod or shake your head. Yes or no. But so (laughs) I I was, I, so here's this, I I was at the state fair recently a week ago, and then I was just at Renaissance festival, um, which is like such a great nerdy uh, come together for, for, for super nerds, you know, but if you like, if you like people, you know, yeah, granted, people drive me crazy, but in 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 general, I, I love people, you know. And so State Fair and Renaissance Festival, if you're a fan of people, it's just a great coming together, you know. And I will say that it gives me hope because, man, there were a lot of people at the State Fair and there are a lot of people at Renaissance Festival. And it's like these are people that are basically they're not living in fear. OK, because there's more than anything, more than the actual virus itself, there is an there is a pandemic of fear going on, in my opinion. And yeah. the other thing, too, I'll tell you, th- this is what I think they're pushing. Call me a crazy conspiracy theorist. I don't give a damn. They're wanting vaccine mandates, and then they're wanting these vaccine passports. They're wanting everybody to have an app. It's, this is the society they're wanting to get everybody into. They want people to have an app on their phone and anywhere you go, you got to show this app. Okay. And then it's going to, I mean, it's, it's like it, to me, I see exactly where it's going. Um, and I, and they're going to, you know, they're going to do it as quickly as they can, but if they have to move slowly, slow, slow, they're, they're going to do it. But my point is you gotta, you gotta stand your ground right now and don't let it go any farther, but they're going to keep pushing. So I don't, you know, that might be a, that might be wild for me to, you know, to say that or but I really believe that they are going to try to get vaccine passports. It's happening throughout the whole Western world, you know, and if you're paying any attention to what's happening in Australia, people should be should people should be freaking out right now about like if what they're doing in Australia, they're going to try to pull it here. You know, they're, they, they're pulling it in the UK. So I'm frankly kind of fed up with it all. And that's my piece. But let's get back to musky talk. 
Huh. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. And we have not, folks should know, we have not discussed this. That's right. This is the first time Maine and I have, have, have talked about this. So, but I, yeah. I know I, I, I appreciate Pete, Pete and his, uh, his opinions. So I, I just, I, I felt like our, our talk would not be complete if we didn't bring this up at some point, you know, because yeah. we always like on our, when we go on shoots together, like, you know, like I was saying earlier, Maine and I have been on a tremendous amount of uh, shoots together. And, and it's one of my, um, real joys in life are the conversations that we've had in the car going to legendary musky lakes. Um, yep. you know, and as a fisherman, just first and foremost, I was a fisherman before I ever got into television. And so to have those, uh, experiences, I, um, I view them very fondly, I'll say. So, um, but how it's just so I, you know, how much time do we got here, Pete? I don't want to take up too much of your time here. I don't know. I got a. You tell me when we need to bail. You just, you just let me know. Oh, we're all right. You're all right. Okay. Okay. Well, I've got a couple hours yet before I got to leave. Yeah, you just, you just let me know, and and uh, but uh, very quickly then. Yeah. Freedom. Yes. So that's more important than anything, and I think they're trying to divide us. Frankly, the masked and the unmasked, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And I totally agree with uh, your little rant there. Yeah. And I think people definitely need to uh, stand for their freedom right now, frankly, because that's more important than anything. We, we just literally cannot have the government telling us which businesses can open, which ones can't, shut you down anytime you want, borders closing, you know, all of these different things that we're dealing with. So I, I do personally believe that, uh, even at risk, uh, we've had our freedoms and there's always risk, right? You jump in your truck, like I'm gonna here shortly and drive down the road, you might get hit all these different things. There's obviously risks of catching whatever, uh, when you go out there, but you, you have to have your freedom. That's more important. What's cool about it, We've got more fishing because of it, because I think, you know, we've had way more anglers since this hit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because they can go out. They don't have to wear a mask. They don't have to deal with the fear. That's right. People enjoy it even more. And and it looks, I mean, they don't talk about it very much uh, on the news, but vitamin D uh, looks to be incredibly effective against the rona so you know like like sunshine vitamin d being outside you know and and i i i yeah i i couldn't agree uh with you more um freedom and people are getting a real here's the reality in the last i don't know 10 years for me i really had my eyes open to um Many things. The most important, I would say, is that the government uh, in general um, is really not to be trusted. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and um, I could give you a very and these aren't uh, this. This isn't fringe uh, stuff. This is Freedom of Information Act. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, um, you should look it up. FOIA, Freedom of, of Information Act. It was an act that basically forced government institutions uh, into having to 
let the public know that of of things that they've done and they've had to declassify documents and whatnot. And there's enough documentation now that uh, no American should tr- trust their government. So I, I encourage people to really look into certain FOIA requests and what they've revealed. Um, and so when something like this comes around where, and, and just in throughout history, fear is used to push agendas forward and, and, uh, and really take away people's rights. Okay. And, I just see this as a glaring, a perfect example of that right now. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's it, it, what's particularly concerning is how it's happening throughout the Western world. You know, it's, and it's all like everybody seems to be uh, repeating the same kind of mantras and slogans. Uh, I saw it initially happen. I've never seen this before last year. Everybody all of a sudden, whether it be Boris Johnson in the UK or Justin Trudeau in Canada or uh, Joe Biden here uh, in the United States, even before he was president, when he was campaigning, he was using the slogan, build back better. (laughs) And it's that slogan is a slogan that uh, uh, this group called the World Economic Forum is using. And they're very powerful uh, organizations uh, organization, look them up if you think I'm full of crap. Um, and what what I've found, I'll just kind of end on this, Pete, on this particular topic. But what I found is that um, through this time, it's it's really it's abundant abundantly clear that um, governments like you know like national like nation states seem to be and and their governments seem to be less important and it's more there's these global like the well like the world economic forum or these global kind of organizations seem to be wielding incredible power over uh individual nation states uh and how they govern i just i just feel like this seems like it's just i don't mean to sound like alex jones here or anything but it just seems like there's such a there's a global agenda to this. And, um, and I've told my wife this many times, like I, during this time, I I'm kind of surprised the stuff that's coming out of my mouth, but I really do feel it. I really do feel like this is what's going on. So well, I'll just, I'll just end it on that. We'll I don't know if the, uh, one, one final thing. Yeah. In our country, neither party can be trusted. The longer a politician has been there, trust them less. That's right. And, and I think this is important, too. So I would say, Pete, you're you're more on the conservative side of things. I would I'd probably consider myself more maybe center, maybe more center left, although I, there's many things I'm more right about. So I, for, I, I really kind of hate labeling any just in general, like what people got to realize. And I, when you said this too, Pete, I, I, I couldn't agree with this more. They use these things. They, they can't have a population that is united, right? They can't have white people and black people all coming together towards a common goal, you know, or united to, 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 uh, towards a common goal, right? So it, it, it's one of the, the ways that I do believe, whatever you want to call them, sometimes they're called the elite or the oligarchy or the ruling class. Let's just call them the ruling class, all right? Ruling class 
will use issues to divide the population. I really believe this now. We'll use issues to divide the population so that the population is just, it's, it can never like coalesce and go against the, the prevailing power structures. And that's where I think we're at, man. Like, you know, the, like mass or unmass, vaccinated, uh, unvaccinated. They're, what I'm hearing from, you know, prominent individuals, you know, when I hear some uh, things about how uh, because they're vaccinated, they're calling the, the unvaccinated like unclean or uh, we're fed up with the unvaccinated. I'm like, what are you talking about? I, I'm like, first of all, these vaccines have never even been given to humans before. These mRNA and a vaccines, they've never been given to humans before mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer. And then they're expecting people to like not be vaccine hesitant, which I love that. That's a thing. It's like, no, I, I'm for I'm not willing to take in a, a, a new vaccine for a virus that has a ninety nine point nine seven percent, sometimes higher, ninety eight, depending on where you look, survivability rate. Have, has everybody lost their freaking mind is is what I think. <laughs> well, there you go. So sorry, Pete. Now sorry. back to muskies. <laughs> So right now uh, is an interesting time because we're seeing the water temperatures drop below 70 degrees. And we're right in that phase. The, the nights have been cooler and they're going to continue to be that way. So what we generally see this time of the year with regard to muskies is we see a shallower movement. Now, there's a lot of fish that have been shallow all summer but you'll get a lot of fish that spent their whole summer since the spawn out in open water, deeper zones. They might be deep reefs or mud flats or whatever it might be. But a lot of these fish with the cooler temps, as you get down into the mid sixties, they show up shallower. And that's one of the reasons I've always theorized why September is a good month. And in a lot of cases, my, my favorite month, because while late fall is tremendous, and especially for bigger fish, because they've got egg weight and all these things, it's the time where they're the fattest fish of the year. But as things drop down below the 50s, everything slows down a little bit. Generally, you can't get fish to hit topwaters as well, or fast-moving bucktails, or, or really erratic presentations moving fast, whether it's crankbaits, jerkbaits, whatever, soft plastics, uh, paddle tails. These types of presentations, to me, are, are just more fun. So you've got a, a shallow situation in a lot of cases. In a lot of cases, some of these fish have been spending their whole summer in open water, and now suddenly they're on shallower structure. I think that makes them a little easier to fool. And it's just fun because you're still talking fast moving baits. And obviously when you hook fish in shallow water, it's just a more exciting fight. You know, it can be a little depressing because they come out of the water a lot. And sometimes right. they throw that bait right back at you. Right. But it's just an awesome time of year. So what do you like, can, if you could go through the, the seasonal, you know, when the muskie season opens, go through the, the kind of seasonal um, locations where muskies hang out, what you do, 
Also, too, as far as presentations, like, okay, musky season opens and go through until close, kind of what, what you're kind of thinking uh, throughout that whole period, you know, when you can start fishing for them. Yeah, well, it's going gonna, it, it's gonna to have to be a pretty fast version because that's a real long story. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give me the, abbrevi- the, the, the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, yeah. Well, they all got to spawn. Uh, that generally happens in, uh, you know, soft bottom areas where there is weed growth. And in a lot of cases, uh, inlets are some of the prime locations for that. But essentially, wherever in a body of water you see vegetation coming early, that's, that's where muskies and pike are going to spawn. Uh, so you definitely target those zones. Generally, uh, in most cases, spawning is over by the time the season opens. That's the whole purpose of it. Uh, they don't want the fish harassed during spawning time, especially when you got ripe eggs, you don't want to be catching those fish. But in a lot of cases, they're still there. They're right in the spawning zones, but that time of the year right away, you're, you're definitely concentrating in and adjacent to the spawning zones. And the fish that do like open water and open water feed forage, they're going to be most likely in the deep water areas right next to the spawning area. And then any adjacent structures, any shorelines moving out to a main lake situation, whatever's in that area structurally or suspended wise near the spawning areas is the first target. And then as the summer progresses, it gets, it gets a little more confusing. There's some fish that just, you know, they, they stay on the weeds and the shallower rocks to a certain extent, but a lot of fish do move out over open water. That's where the, uh, the electronics available these days have unbelievably changed the game. I'm somewhat of a Flintstone comparatively. <laughs> a lot of the younger guys, when it comes to, you know, using the technology, I, I still don't have anything that's uh, super high tech with regard to literally looking for the fish. There's a, there's a lot of different stuff out there right now. I know hummingbirds coming out with something new that I guess is just amazing as well, but you're literally able to look off to the side, see fish movements. You get good at it. You can actually tell what's a muskie or a pike or something like that. So you literally now with side imaging and all the different things that we have, you've got, you've got people going out casting for muskie and pike, but they are not casting until they see the fish literally on their electronics and then they cast to it. So they're running around searching the open water areas, gradually moving and they're ready to cast. And as soon as they see a fish, they literally cast to it countdown to it in a lot of cases and it can be unbelievably effective but that's that's something that's totally changed the game where it was just a a knowledge thing before that the fish were out in open water suspended but you basically had to cover water to find the sweet spots and just kind of guess and be smart enough to know when you got one there might be others but uh, that's totally changed the game in the summer but there's going to be a lot of fish out in open water and all over that. That summer pattern kind of goes for about two months that way. And then to me, uh, once the heat is off, you start to see things change on this latitude. Obviously, it's a different situation in other parts of the country. 
but that's always been kind of the trigger point for me is right around the middle of August. That's when you start seeing some things change a little bit, fish start moving around the forage situation as well. Uh, it all, it all starts moving and, uh, it's a little confusing this time of the year too, because, uh, I get a lot of people that, you know, they'll uh, obviously inquire and, and, and they want to know about a certain lake. They'll say, hey, Pete, okay, I got a trip coming in two weeks to whatever lake or whatever region. Uh, what do I do? And in order to answer that question, honestly, you'd love to be able to say as a, you know, an expert, okay, well, here's exactly what you do. But two weeks this time of the year, that's a that, yeah. that might well be a million miles. Yeah, because you really can't answer that question. That there, there's so many movements going on at this time. There, there might not be a muskie anywhere near a bull rush right now. In a lot of cases, and two weeks from now, there's a lot of them in the bull rushes, super shallow in some of these lakes. You know, it's it, it really is a, a, a an unanswerable question that requires day-to-day -day patterning out on the water to just locate these fish where they're at. Obviously it's a little bit easier now than it used to be, you know, using imaging and the different things I just talked about, but uh, finding the fish is always the key. And then as we talked about quite a bit earlier, taking advantage of the feeding windows, it's just a huge deal. That's what makes the muskie game so hard when you're dealing with bass or walleyes or panfish it's a lot easier to know where the fish are with your electronics. And one of the biggest things with muskies still, even with all the advantages you have uh, with electronics now is, is finding, finding where the fish are, being, being able to locate them. So even if you can't get them at the time during an off period, you know where to go uh, when they start turning on. And as soon as you see that, you know, You've heard it over the years filming with me, uh, and and the second or third day of any shoot, I'm always a lot more dialed because I got an idea of where the fish are. And if we haven't seen a muskie in four or five hours, which is real common muskie fishing, and all of a sudden you see that it might not bite, you see that first hot follow, then it's like game on. Your mind spins. You're like, okay, where where do I think the most fish are? And you better get there and you better get there now and you better you better fish as hard as you can, as fast as you can. If you get one, you'd love to be able to celebrate it, but don't celebrate it long. You better get those lures right back in the water in order to optimize that feeding window period. And, and that's the thing, too, because there's just, you know, there's there's less uh fish in the system because they're at the top of the, the food chain. But but I think, you know, I've I've seen it with all fish, at least with bass, you know, now that, you know, because of major league fishing, you, you know, that these there's flurries that happen and they happen lake wide. And so with a muskie, um, boy, you really got to take advantage of it, you know, because there's, there's not as many of them and you've just got to be on their, the prime locations, you know, when they're happening, but you guys, I think I've said this earlier, like you guys have known this for a long time. It's just like these, these other, I, I think, you know, other, you know, like bass anglers and stuff are coming around to it. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, we've always seems like we've always had the, the, the uh, Rick Taylor's Astro tables or whatever, you know, those have been in the back of Bassmaster magazine, you know, but I think most bass anglers didn't really uh, pay attention to it. But I think with now just knowing, you know, with, 
score tracker and stuff, at least in the bass world, there there's, there's peak times. I mean, there's, you know, so yeah, I mean, we're going, we're, we're talking about what we talked about earlier, but I did want to, you know, you brought up the, the live uh, sonar. I mean, the d- different manufacturers have different names for it. And I know Humminbird just came out with their version of it. Um, Lawrence's had theirs. You know, I think Garmin was the first to come out with it, Panoptics. And, yeah, the Panoptics, yeah. Yeah, so wh- what, you know, it, we, we've talked about too, like just how great, um, you know, mapping has got. And it's, it's, it's got to be a little frustrating when you've really taken the time to learn a fishery, learn all the little nooks and crannies of a body of water and then mapping this, like, like this mapping that's out now, it's like, it shows everything. Some of these maps are so detailed. You wonder like what, so you've got that, right. And that's been around for years and years now, but then you've got like live, the live sonar kind of revolution that's happening. What, just, what are your thoughts on all that? And if, if it could be, harmful beneficial in general well my thoughts are and you've you've heard my grumpy old man rant uh, quite a while ago when the mapping came out yeah uh, you no know, yeah it was uh you know when you've learned bodies of water like leach and malax and saint Clair through trial and error before all the stuff came out and, and you've got many, many hours in learning those structures and the, and the hotter spots on certain winds and this, that, and the other. At least, at least that information so far is not out uh, in some kind of electronic form. Uh, certain winds and currents that develop makes some spots better. That's, that's basically a little bit of knowledge that's, that's left that the machines can't tell you. But it it literally changes everything. And, and I, I, I was upset and grumpy. I know I ran into you when uh, all of a sudden this mapping came out and <laughs> you literally had a situation where the average angler who would go out and, and buy that chip for the first time was as good or even better than me because there was things that showed up on the mapping that I hadn't even figured out on some of the monster lakes like Malax. And I was like, Holy cow, I can't even believe this, how accurate this is. They're not perfect. In some cases, they're better than others. But frankly, it's amazing to me uh, how accurate some of it is. So it really, it, it really has changed the game. Is it, is it good or bad? So there's one side of me that hates it. I would actually honestly rather go back to the uh, well, tougher guesswork, figure it out on your own. But on the other hand, it's there. You can't blame the companies for putting it out. It's amazing. And if you get stubborn and just refuse to use it, like I'd like to do, uh, you're going to get your butt kicked, frankly. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's still not going to make them bite, but uh, it has made these fish a lot more educated. That's why it's it, it's really really changed the game trying to figure out what what lures and what methods uh you know are going to work on fish the one thing that i can say as a as a grumpy old guy just the other day we were we were fishing a big weed bed 
And there was a young guy and his, his wife or girlfriend out there. We had a nice chat with them. They're real nice people. But this kid was ripping soft plastics through the weeds that literally my old back, I just, I, I'm not going to do it anymore, dude. I can't. <laughs> but that was, it was, I, I love watching that kind of stuff. We were on kind of the bad side of it because that's what was working and nothing else was. But in a, in a time period of 20 minutes, or we were using a bunch of other stuff, basically doing the same thing, we watched this guy. He only caught one, but he got four hits in a 20-minute in a period uh, when, you know, we were trying bucktail topwater, uh, you know, stuff running up over the weeds, not as, not as fast, not quite as erratic. And you watch that happen. So it's, to now me... This 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 As was a perfect educated you're going to see more of that i see so this was a person using that forward facing sonar no it, this was strictly strictly tactic very very big weighted soft plastic but he was just ripping it oh no kidding out into the weeds and literally ripping it through uh, so it was it was very, very situational with regard to lure presentation only. It was fast, it was super erratic, and it's something that, you know, it just it hurts. You gotta be young to do it. It sounds like so it sounds like Van Dam, you know, like how, how Van Dam would approach muskies as far as like it's like a just a you know, it's like a seek and destroy kind of mentality. <laughs> Yeah, and you'll see that with uh, uh, speed. Uh, sometimes, obviously, you want to slow way down as well. But, I mean, you know, uh, the, the difference between somebody uh, using a bucktail at a medium speed retrieve and just burning it as fast as you possibly can, same thing with a paddle tail or whatever it might be. Uh, obviously, there's swim baits. There's a lot of different things. So they're, they're just getting there. You think what's happening in that situation and those fish are just, they're just triggering more. Like, I mean, yeah. that, and, and it's, and that's, what's so fascinating. I've, I've, I'm sure I've talked to you about this. Um, it's like when Van Dam, you know, I've, I've worked a ton with Van Dam. Van Dam was like the one in the bass fishing world, at least that realized like he could, it's a, it's almost like a mathematical equation, right? Like if, if I'm, I've got this day of eight hours or less than eight hours, typically in the tournament day, or I've got this amount of time. And if I present my bait in front of as many fish as possible, and if I'm really good at triggering fish, if I work that bait in a way that can trigger those fish, I will have this like a mathematical re equation. I will, I will have a better chance of bringing more fish at the end of the, the way. Like he's it's his, his approach. And now everybody's like this. I, I told Van Dam uh, early this year um, after he'd really gotten, he was really close on the, uh, to, to making the cut, but he didn't make it. And afterwards he was really frustrated. And I, and I said to him, you know, I'm, I said like the competition's so good right now. And I was like, the, you've made all these guys. You know, you've made all these guys that are, that are, you know, that are such hard competition now. And it's because he was, you know, and it seems like this is, it's like now in the musky world, it's like, if you, you know, you hit, you, you fish a lot of places fast and you fish aggressively and you're using like triggering retrieves, you know, you can, you can, 
I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a tactic, and it could be really effective. It's interesting to see that that's like hitting the the musky world. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's and, and to me, that's just that's a combination of more anglers, better mapping. Uh, you know, the the imaging, uh, everything that's out there. So there's there's more people that are a lot better at it with better tools, wasting less and less time they're on fish all the time and these these fish get educated to whatever degree I, I i don't know they you know you don't think they think but they have to to a certain extent it's just you know they get used to certain presentations and you'll still have those windows we talked about earlier where they'll literally light up and they'll bite just about anything. At, at times, I'm sure they'd bite a sock or whatever you do. <laughs> yeah. it, it's pretty rare these days, I guess, to a certain extent. But, you know, the, there are times when literally everything works, the window's just open. But there's a lot of times where, you know, that story I just told you from the other day where it's really specific. It's a certain lure type and a certain method that's literally, it's getting down there. And I think because it's so aggressive, they might not be real active, but when you get lucky and land it right on one's head, you just rip through a weed and it pulls out and it drops right within a foot of a fish. Boom. That same fish is not going to come up and grab a bucktail running above, but because it was aggressive and reactionary and just right there all that fish need to do is dart up a foot and grab it they're going to do it and and that kind of stuff is uh is always really interested me to to watch and and see when it's something that specific that's working and that's the only thing working and i've seen that over the years where it's 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 almost profound and you wonder how many days you've spent on the water where you could have caught two or three and you caught none, but you, you know, you maybe just didn't try the right thing. There's on most days, there's probably something that would work, but you didn't figure it out. You didn't try it. You know? But what I, what I would say is like for you to, for you to talk about a guy fishing aggressively and, and, and ripping, you know, ripping a bait through, through weeds and like, your your back can't handle that. You you wouldn't be able to do it. That's saying a lot coming from you, because you're like in you know we've talked about this. I have a hard time calling fishermen athletes, right? But I would put you in the athlete category. Like you're like you can you're a, you're an athlete. You're a real like some of these bass fishermen with beer guts talk, saying they're athletes. Get out of here. You're an athlete, man. Ah. You know, they haven't, they haven't their, their, you know, listen, I love these guys, but you know, they have in their, their profile, like athlete, you know, and I, I, I see them, you know, heading to the, 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 um, Burger King, you know, after the tournament or something, I'm like, <laughs> come on now. But I mean, that is saying something, the fact that, you know, that, that, um, you know, you, you witness this guy fishing that aggressively that hard and you were impressed that's saying something. That's really saying something. Oh, I, you know, that's, you fish hard, man. I mean, you, oh, yeah. you bust your ass, you yeah. know? So that's really, I'd like, I mean, I'd love to see this guy fish because it had to be something. And that's the difference too. In the, in the, 
in the bass world as a, you know as opposed to the musky world yeah it's it's one thing to be aggressive and make a ton of casts and rip and make really aggressive presentations you know triggering presentations in the bass world doing that in the wall or excuse me in the in the musky world is a whole different thing much bigger rods obviously much heavier you know presentations lures i mean that's a totally different thing to keep up that you know, that pace or whatever, that kind of presentation speed and tempo using musky gear. Oh, it's hard. Well, that's the reason my back's bad. You know, I did it for years, you know, and it is, it's, it's somewhat of an endurance and a, and a physical game in a lot of cases, you know, we've got unbelievably gaudy and large lures we use, you know, they're the, the advent of one pound soft plastics was, already about a decade ago yeah and that's something i found frankly i just you know i'm accepting the fact that i'm not going to do that to catch a muskie because it hurts but it hurts (laughs) And, and and that's the guys that really consistently get a lot of big fish i think in a lot of cases that's that's why i mean if you can aggressively fish a really big bait like that and do it for long hours uh, a lot of that's just physical and mental to be able to do that. And, and you're going to catch more big fish, big fish do react to those big targets like that. And in a world where there's a million baits spinning around, I think it's, it even becomes more of a factor, uh, you know, pre- presentations that are unique, aggressive and big, they, they do get it done. There's no and, you know, it's interesting you say that. And, um, and I keep on harping on Van Dam here, but as far as it, it really applies very well to him. And I have a lot of experience filming him and just working with him in general. Like, you know, he, he, you know, that presentation style, that aggressive, you know, seek and destroy making a lot of presentations, but also very aggressive presentations, triggering presentations, you know, a lot of people, Van Dam has used Strike King products. Um, he, he's basically any of his sponsors. He's used, you know, if he's sponsored by him, that's the lures that he uses, right? And it's not so much the case now, but there used to be a lot of very uh, well, like there is now, you know, um, very detailed crankbaits, hard baits, you know, spinner baits, whatever. Very detailed, especially coming out of Japan. Very expensive. And Strike King, you know, anybody that knows Van Damme, Strike King is like his big sponsor, one of his big sponsors he's had for years and years and years. And um, particularly, you know, I, I don't know how many years back, but there, they, there, um, there was a lot of f- more fancy lures, let's put it that way, that Van Damme could have been using, right? L- uh, more expensive lures, that Van Dam could have been using, but he stuck with those, with the Strike King lures that, you know, some people, I, I've heard this, some people were amazed. They're like, he's, he's using that crankbait. That's, that's not a very, you know, like Van Dam would use crankbaits that you could just go to Walmart. You know, there wasn't anything fancy about them. You know, they're Strike King, you know, like just right off the shelf and he would kick people's butts with them. You know, and to me, that's another example. Like I, I, I've heard from uh, some some other like, you know, Japanese like Lucky Craft. You know, guys that are sponsored by them. 
I've heard people were just amazed that he was using everything that he was sponsored by, you know, and they, they were less expensive lures. And meanwhile, he's kicking their tail with them because more than anything, it was probably about the speed of that presentation with that bait and not so, you know, about how the, the eye, the eye of the lure was a per, there was a great do, you know, replica of the eye of a minnow and how super detailed it was. It wasn't about that with speed and, or what would Van Dam has said numerous, numerous times is that speed kills. And so more than anything, it was the speed of the presentation he was doing, not how detailed a lure was, or um, I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's, it's so much on, it's, it's more than anything. It's how quickly you're working that bait aggressively and it's like you're it's like a you're snapping that fish it's like a cat you know you work a, a um, um you know a cat toy a certain way and all of a sudden a cat will just pounce on it it's the same thing with fish i've seen it time and time again and it's interesting that that's the same it, it's like with any predator i think it does it could be a walleye look at like snap jigging and walleye fishing you know okay. it's like just triggering it's those triggering presentations but anyway i'm going off on a I, before I let you go here, Pete, I just wanted to get a couple of things. Like, so what are, what, like, we're, we've, I'm sure we're talking about some trends here, you know, as far as these more aggressive presentations and whatnot, but what are other trends that you're seeing in the musky world right now? Trends? Uh, to a certain extent, we, we somewhat covered that uh, in, in the use of the electronic. I mean, that's the single biggest trend that I've seen with what, uh, you know, people that are literally not fishing for fish until they see them. That was, that was totally unheard of. There's not been a, a whole lot, I guess, lure wise new there's, there's always, you know, new stuff coming out and, you know, they got a couple extra tails or whatever in the soft plastic and this, that, and the other, but, uh, I would say it's, it's far more on the electronic side than, than anything right now. Okay. as far as the biggest trend and, and uh you know there there's still the one old-fashioned thing that i've talked about for years is the patterning thing which somewhat we've touched on with the you know the ripping through the weeds with that particular bait uh but uh another thing is pauses and and rises i've seen some real significant deals where the only way a muskie would hit a bait is a buoyant bait and you've got to be willing to at least three or four times in that retrieve, let the bait rise and wobble on the rise in order to get a strike. I've seen patterns with that where it's just totally specific. And thankfully, once in a while, you still get a, just a, a certain sound or, you know, they're, they're, really, they're really on top water for whatever reason. And you can do real well with just, you know, cranking in a, a top water medium speed there everything's just perfect for what the the big challenge is trying those different things and and trying to figure that out and that's at least that will probably never change and it's something that you know is is the thing i enjoy the most i guess when you're actually out there and i've said this for quite a few years now but uh as much as i enjoy fishing alone at times in a lot of ways i it drives me nuts musky fishing i've said it and said it and said it because you can only try one lure at a time 
And boy, if you've got a, you know, at least two other casters, you can, you can hopefully come to a lure pattern, presentation pattern a lot quicker and figure that out. Obviously that, that goes for the structures as well. So, but you got to see them, you got to know they're there. And in a lot of kit, what one place, the, uh, the electronics really don't work that well is obviously weeds. Uh, it's, it's really hard. If they're sitting in the base of the weeds, you're not going to go around and spot muskies with any of the stuff out there. So that's a little bit more of a, you know, a, a game of still just flat out patterning, trying to figure out what they're in the mood for, where they're at. Different weed types can be a big patterning tool. You'll see that we had, uh, we had that situation the other day as well, where it was, you know, there was two types of weeds in the area that by the end of it, I knew I wanted to stay away from. <laughs> and, uh, you know, those are, those are little tools as well, just where the fish are located. I assume it's forage based type thing that for some reason the, the forage was hanging out in certain types and not others, whatever it might've been, but, those are things to look for while you're on the water. And that's a, that, that's a day-to-day thing. You know, you constantly got to be changing and trying to figure those things out. And that's the biggest thing too, you know, and it sounds like a cliche, but I, I always kind of laugh at fishing reports to a certain extent, you know, like, I mean, I think they can maybe help to get kind of a, maybe a baseline of what to do, a foundation, but I mean, there is no, and it is such a cliche, but there really is no, um, there's there's no uh, there's nothing that comes close to just spending time on the water getting to because there's so I mean unlike any other you know pastime sport you know like golf I mean things you know you might have a more a windier day or something like that or uh, you know or uh, but the the golf course isn't changing. I mean, I'm not a golfer, so I I, I don't want to be speaking out of turn here. But you know what I mean. Whereas, like fishing to be successful on a consistent basis, you know, or or on a more consistent basis, you just got to put the time in uh, on the water, you know, because it's yeah. just weather changes. I mean, seasonal changes, uh, and just I mean, you're going after another living creature, you know, that's got its own you know, idea what to do. Um, so it's, it can, it can be very frustrating, but at the same time, it's, that's what makes it so great, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just want to say one last thing on the live, uh, live sonar thing. And then I'll ask you a last question here, but, um, the I, I've seen it where I, I thought like the, the forward facing sonar, let's call it that forward facing sonar. Um, (laughs) <laughs> that I, when I, when I first started seeing it show up, you know, filming major league fishing events, <clears throat> I, I noticed that most guys were using it in shallow applications. They were using it to kind of see if there's anything around a, a deeper dock, you know, uh, using it on bridge abutments, just kind of seeing, uh, or, uh, last year I saw it, um, being deployed uh, on uh, for smallmouth seeing you know, scanning a hump to see if these smallmouth are on a hump because smallmouth can move like just on a whim, you know, they could be on one hump and the next day they're not even there that you could have got a hundred on one hump and the next day they're completely gone, you know? Uh, so that forward facing sonar what guys would do, they, 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 get on that hump, scan that hump. There wasn't anything there. They move on to another hump. 
a lot of times. So that, that is something in fishing that I just, I, I was like, my, my mouth kind of dropped when that was going on. Cause that's a, it's a relatively new kind of thing going on there. Cause you used to have to actually fish to determine whether, you know, like if there was anything going on. Right. So now, but, but now I'm seeing, you know, guys even, you know, they're, they're using it in more just deeper applications, scanning a, a break, you know, to see if there's, and, and I've, and I've filmed where uh, guys have scanned a break, you know, drop off and they go, Oh yeah, they're there. And then they'll, they'll fish it. So it's, it's something, I mean, it's exciting technology, but there's also part of me that thinks, wow, this is also going to make things potentially more difficult. You know, these fish are good. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like, I'm, I guess I'm old school here a bit, you know, there's a part of me that's like, Oh, this is exciting. But this at the same time, I'm like, boy, there's a lot of people are going to know. There's just going to be harder place. It's going to be fish are going to have a harder time hiding anymore. So I guess I'll put it that way. But, um, but I did want to, I did want to uh, get into uh, just to, to close it up here. And I appreciate your time, Pete. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, this fall, I'm going to, I got a, a, a new boat last year. Um, and I really want to spend some time, you know, musky fishing around, uh, my area and, uh, was just like, what tips would you get primarily just equipment? Like what does someone need if they're going to be, if they're going to, and I've musky fished before, but I, I'm, I'm rusty. Um, what does someone need if they want to venture into the, the world of musky, like the basics of getting started? Well, they definitely got a gold bait caster. You do still run into some people who are not comfortable with bait casters. And the reason being just, uh, frankly, is the, uh, the, the spool adjustment and preventing tangles on the cast. So the problem with spinning or spin casting is that, you know, it's total free spool when the lure's flying through the air and with these big heavy lures. So anyone that, you know, really, uh, you know, wants to get into it, you got to start with a good bait casting reel. That's going to be able to, uh, uh, you know, if you can get 80 yards of no stretch line on there, super braid, uh, I do use a Seaguar thread lock myself in 80 pound test. Uh, and, uh, and, Really, I think the overall longer rods are better these days, and that's that's all relative to your boat and situation you're fishing out of. So, you know, if it's a John boat or something like that, long could very easily be an eight-foot rod. Uh, someone who fishes mainly out of a big boat like I do, I would I would suggest at least a nine-foot rod these days because the uh, the boat side action is just absolutely crucial. That's something that really hasn't changed with these educated fish. I think we're actually probably getting more on figure eights these days or circles by the side of the boat than, than we did originally. I think that's been part of the education process. I've always believed what uh, triggers them at the side of the boat is they just figure it's the last chance the, the prey fish is trying to get away. It's going wildly in circles. And uh, so the boat side maneuvers are extremely important. So with the super braid line too, there's, there's still, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of rods to me that are a little too uh, stiff in the top half. 
when you are using super braid line, you definitely want to get a, like a medium heavy action. Everything to a certain extent is relative. You got to have a lot of backbone in the rod. You need an ex extra heavy type uh, bottom half of the rod in order to throw one pound plastics. But you still don't want that top half to be super stiff like a pool cue because, you know, you need something to absorb that shock with those big head shakes. And there's, to me, a lot of, uh, a lot of rods out there that are a little too stiff. So watch, you know, watch that action in the top half. Uh, I think that can, that can work against you once you've actually got a fish on when you've got uh, no stretch line. And, uh, but just, yeah, longer rods and really, really, really concentrate on that, that figure eight and, and both side stuff. I've said this for years, especially men, men tend to have bigger egos than women. And uh, I, I tell people practice, practice with every bait, jerk bait, bucktail. If you've, if you've not thrown a lot, practice with that by the side of the boat with your circles or eights, whatever it is to make sure you know, uh, you, or you can just perform that eight and keep that bait in the water column. Certain types of crankbaits might blow out, whatever, but practice doing big circles, practice changing depth as you're doing the circles. It sounds real simple, but it's not if you don't practice by the side of the boat. And it's, it's just a massively huge deal. And if you screw up, if you blow a lure out of the water or you let a bucktail blade stop spinning, uh, you're, you're going to miss that chance at that fish. So practice, practice, practice by the side of the boat, good, good boat side maneuvers. And, you know, overall, uh, be, be confident in that as potentially 50% of your triggering, which I think it is in a lot of cases these days. And, and so many people don't, don't want to deal with it, you know? And, and the other thing is shock. If you're, if you're new to it, I mean, there's that shock factor. You may think you can do a good figure eight, but you haven't seen a muskie in three, four hours. And all of a sudden here he comes and he show up out of nowhere at the side of the boat and you freak out and you screw it up. I've yeah, you got a submarine all of a sudden looking at your bait. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's so, yeah, what, what happens? So um, beginning musky fishermen, yeah, that happens. They All of a sudden they're, they're hooked up. With their, what kind of a net do they need? What kind of a, you know, it's especially to get the musky boated, but then also like it's, it's super important too because you also don't want to be massacred by uh, online by musky anglers. You need to learn how to hold that fish properly. But then it's also, um, you know, like the Nipex. I, I know you're using Nipex. If you get a musky, I mean, that's just what's important too. These fish are such a, a treasured resource. You have to know how to, how to handle them and then also get the hooks out. And sometimes you got to cut the hooks. So just like, so you, uh, what kind of, you, how big of a net do you need, I guess, first and foremost, and what kind of a net? Uh, you want a, you want a big net with a deep bag, plain and simple, but you really want to pay attention to the, to the mesh. You want a bag that's at least, you know, four feet deep so that you can leave the musky in the net over the side of the boat, like a live well over the side when you're getting the hooks out. And, uh, and as you prepare to lift, lift out for photos, you definitely want them to be able to breathe 
for obvious reasons. And uh, the mesh is extremely important. I use a clam colossus. I helped design that net. Uh, you should use a net with a tightly woven mesh, fairly big mesh that's coated and treated. Uh, that does not allow the hooks to get in and literally get in past the barb in the net. You can get unbelievable tangles. If you've got uh, a loose weave, you, you're going to have hooks tangled all the time. Uh, nobody is good at handling fish when you got that situation. So you that that mesh is an extremely important thing and 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 there's a there's a lot of good products out there but there's a lot of bad products out there so i would i would pay most attention to the quality of the mesh that you're getting and that the bag is deep enough to act like a live well over the side of the boat a 40 inch hoop is a basically a good standard in, in that area obviously you just don't want to go too small either because these are big fish and the whole purpose of having that deep bag and using it as a live well over the side of the boat is for the fish to be able to stretch out and, and breathe. So, it, you know, unfortunately, even for a smaller boat, realistically, it has to be a bigger net because you're going for big fish. Okay. And, and then that... hook cutters, yeah. long note pliers, uh, you, you know, you obviously you want to have spare hooks. Uh, to to replace split ring pliers and and preferably the you know your pliers should be 13 inch or bigger if you can get them because they are toothy and there's a lot of hooks flying around there so you you really if you've never done it before it is a basically a different class of tools than you may need for walleye bass or whatever you definitely want to be be bigger and uh, you know the the jaw spreaders are not a bad idea as well to help keep mouse open, especially for Northern pike. But you do want to have jaw spreaders that have some kind of a cap on the prongs so that you're not poking through the fish. But uh, yeah, have those have those extra tools and definitely have a have a big net with a quality mesh that's not going to wipe off slime and cut fins and. Cause and then the the line cutters, uh, good call. Excuse me, uh, uh, met, uh, wire cutters you know, good quality yeah. wire cutters. And, and so you determine when to use the wire cutters when the, basically the, you got treble hooks all over the fish and that's just, it's going to, it's going to do more harm trying to get those hooks out. Then you want to start cutting hooks out basically. Absolutely. If you see hooks anywhere near an eye or the gill area, that's automatic. You shouldn't even grab the pliers unless you're going barbless. Uh, that's another consideration as well. Uh, very few people do it, though, realistically. So if you have barbs on your hooks, you see anything near an eyeball uh, or or the gill area. Or the other thing I suggest to people is that uh, if you get smaller fish, especially if the that hook is really in the corner of the mouth or whatever, be, be aware that with the barbs, in a lot of cases, you can simply damage fish, younger fish especially, that, you know, you're, you're going to tear that flesh. You may deform the jaw and then they, they've lost jaw strength for the rest of their lives, potentially. Mm. You're way better off just clipping those hooks okay. and letting the pieces fall out. So, or the yeah. fish are way better off. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's super important. If if you know you're going to jump into the the world of musky fishing, you really need to to know that stuff. Um, you know, I think it's it's. I mean, I, I'm going to be doing it this fall, and I just I wanted to hear from you. Um, just 
what all I need. I, I knew the basics, but I think it's important too that I rep- anybody else that wants to try musky fishing needs to know that too. So, but well, uh, I've taken up way too much of your time, Pete, but I, I, I knew that. Go, I, I got to go actually do it instead of talk. About it's it. wonderful. It's wonderful. I love it about you, you man. You, you, you got tons of experience and I always, uh, I've always enjoyed talking with you fishing and just fishing in general. Pete obviously is a well-known, badass musky fisherman but this guy can go after everything he loves fishing just period and that's why i love this man and he's fun as hell to talk with so pete enjoyed it brother and and good luck on your trip man thank you sir i enjoyed it and i love that ham sign (laughs) grow your hair a little bit though no i actually gotta do it It, see i was gonna get a haircut from my wife before i go now you screw that it looks so shaggy Maybe I'll wear a pony. No, I won't. I love it. No, Mana, I had I had crazy hair. You should have seen my hair in the winter and the spring and and even into the late summer into the the summer. I had just it was out of control. I had a crazy like it. duck dynasty beard. It was I would look like Sasquatch, but yeah, I'll I'll start growing it this fall, you know. It might be my winter look. So, but yeah, I love it. Up. I love don't ever don't ever change. Keep the hair. I mean, it's it's, you know, come on it's i love it so all right mana get get on the road dude take care brother love you likewise see you dude thanks for tuning into the podcast if you've enjoyed our content please consider subscribing to another fishing podcast on itunes which is available also on just about every major podcasting platform We'd love for you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Angling Uploaded, and for exclusive benefits, become a member on Patreon. So go to patreon.com and search Angling Uploaded, become a member. Oh, God, we'd love you if you do that. Thanks, guys.